Hello and welcome, and I'm your host today, Konstantin Kogan, and we're at Holistic Investments. And I'm excited to have here Jamie Burke. Uh, he's a CEO and founder of Outline Ventures. Hey there, good to be here. Hi, Jamie. And uh, we're going to talk about today a lot of interesting topic, Web uh, 3.0. We're going to talk about uh, the uh, the evolution of DeFi from the broken DeFi space in retail to the institutional grade. Uh, and uh, before that, uh, traditionally, we have to let uh, let ourselves off the hook. Uh, so I'm going to read the disclaimer. So this content is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. So again, Outlier Ventures, uh, it's a custom accelerator, Web 3.0, and you've been investing since 2014, incubated more than 30 projects, or maybe the number is different right now. So tell us a little bit about it. Like, you know, how did you start it? Why did you even decide to focus on this particular strategy? Yeah, so uh, I founded Outlier Ventures close to seven years ago now. Um, very early on in the evolution of the crypto industry. Um, you certainly couldn't call it an industry then. I would argue you can perhaps only just begin to call it an industry now. Um, and it was really driven, I was an angel investor at the time, and I came across Bitcoin as a consequence to researching peer-to-peer -peer lending and how you might do that. Of course, came across Bitcoin as a form of peer-to-peer -peer money. And, you know, that really triggered uh, this, this journey. I became increasingly convinced that the idea of digital scarcity was revolutionary, um, both for the web, but the world generally. And it was very obvious to me, having spent a lot of time advising, supporting large organizations, typically on innovation, change management, that most of them would never directly adopt Bitcoin um, and that there would be this multi-chain universe. And so that was kind of the starting premise. Obviously, I had no idea how to time that um, or much of the nuance. I'm not a developer, a coder. I kind of refer to myself as a creative technologist in that I understand how things work at a high level and can figure out how they might work together, complement one another but I'm not a coder. So I brought on board a co-founder, technical co-founder, our CTO, Aaron Von Amers, who was both technical, but also very commercial. Um, and we set about just breaking stuff. So the idea was, well, there's not really anything to invest in beyond Bitcoin and then um, eventually ETH. Uh, but there weren't really startups, you know, like, classic startups that you could invest in and those that were coming along weren't really grasping the idea that they were they should have been designing for a new paradigm so it's very much kind of just layering on the idea that they could lay a blockchain on top of their existing business and somehow it would um it would be transformative so we decided at that point i just put our co-founder on a retainer i said look for the next 18 months let's just play with the technology break stuff, um, figure out its limitations, and then that will inform our investment thesis, but then also allow us to have a more nuanced understanding of, of the technology and also its applicability to different use cases. And so, you know, I've heard 
all the use cases in the world like a million times now. We've probably spoken to 7,000 startups over those seven years, at least a 1,000 a year. Um, wow. And there aren't really any new use cases. A lot of them were already thought of even back then. It was just they were impossible to actually execute on. We needed this stack of technologies and infrastructure to happen. And again, you would argue it's only just most use cases are only just possible now in, in the end of 2020. So, um, uh, but at the same time, as pleasantly surprised with the rate of hype that came around the space. And I think, you know, with everything that R3 did, onboarding all the banks into the consortia, it kind of legitimized the space from, from what it had previously been, which is very Bitcoin oriented. Um, a very kind of political and that started to drive a lot of media attention and increasingly other angels would come to me and say look you know I want to get exposure to the space it's just too technical or they've got a day job at a bank we had a lot of people at Goldman or City or wherever who wanted to invest in angels but just didn't have the time um, to to go deep and understand the space and so Outlier grew pretty organically as a partnership. So we never took LP money. Um, we basically just, you know, gradually brought along a ragtag of other angel investors that wanted exposure to the space and kind of collectively we figured that space out. So I think we're now 21 partners, about to take on a couple more members into the partnership. We don't really do more than a couple each year if they're now strategic rather than just financial. And um, and, and we effectively invest as a collective um, mm -hmm. into, into deals. And the models really evolved over that seven-year period. So as I said in the beginning, there wasn't really thing, anything to invest in. So back then we were more of a studio where we would build things, roll them out, not really thinking that they would necessarily go on and be a success, but just as a learning process, whilst the industry matured, the infrastructure matured. Um, we then became convinced uh, after about a year of that, that there's just much more infrastructure that needed to be built before you could do anything interesting at the application layer. So mm -hmm. at that point, we uh, turned ourselves into an incubator focused primarily or exclusively actually on infrastructure. Um, so projects that were building out infrastructure around the thesis that we developed called the convergence thesis, which was effectively the convergence looking at DLT, not in isolation, but in combination with IoT and AI. Um, and in that context, understanding um, blockchain and DLT as an enabler for a new data economy, ultimately everything driven by data. So IoT would... Um, the devices would produce the data, DLT would transport, organize, commodify that data, and then AI would consume, increasingly consume that data for uh, more autonomous systems. And so that's kind of been the, the, the frame thesis. Um, we made several investments and partnerships with different infrastructure at different levels. So fetch.ai, which was kind of the machine learning component, Ocean, um, uh, which was, you know, data marketplaces, commodification of data, um, things like uh, Secret Network, which we worked with a bit later in the cycle, um, mm -hmm. multi-party kind of computation, privacy-preserving computation. Um, and even really early on, um, IOTA, because they were looking at 
you know, a, a different novel approach with the DAG to IoT. And so IoT was specific interest to us. Um, and so, uh, so we were studio, incubator, and then more recently when we became convinced that enough infrastructure was now out there, it was about making it usable, we started investing at the middleware layer so developer tooling to make infrastructure usable for the 99% of developers. Mm-hmm. People often think of adoption as consumers. In the Web3 context, we first need to onboard the 99% of developers before we even start considering end consumers. Um, and then the application layer in things like DeFi and now NFTs, two things that we'll obviously talk about a little bit later, but we believe represent kind of a crossover moment for crypto. So now we are an accelerator. We run three cohorts a year of 10, so 30 startups a year um, for five months, three months intense, two months support at kind of pre-seed seed stage. No, that's amazing. And uh, so just wanted to a little bit go back and uh, uh, if someone uh, does not follow your career path, you know. So this also uh, was uh, started, uh, I would say, in parallel between also your your um, your commitment to blockchain angels. Like so, that was a, uh, the world's largest professional network, you know, where you basically dedicated, you know, all your resources to curate different projects around the world and you know connect basically angel investors, family offices, and uh, the VC community. So, I, as I understand, it happened organically and. Uh, so I'm just curious, probably like, you know, if someone wants to become a partner of Outlier Ventures, so what's the process? Yeah, so, I mean, at the moment, we, we generally, uh, it's very rare that we would take in new partners now. We're, we're pretty well capitalized over the last seven years. We, we've been profitable every year for seven years, including, you know, crypto winters. In fact, in the last Crypto winter, we actually accelerated 21 startups. So we were probably the most active investor in in Europe. um, Impressive. Despite the winter. Um, And this is all self-finance now. So, you know, when we work with projects, both previously in the incubator and now the accelerator, we have um, 6% of equity in the company, if if there is one, and then 6% of token supply, uh, if there is one. Mm-hmm. And so, and what is the um, ticket size? Um, well, so we we give kind of a stipend. Really, it's about sixty thousand US dollars to, to to join to cover the costs, and then we kind of unlock. Um, it could be up to about quarter of a million over the course of the program, subject mm-hmm. to how how a team performs, and then they will go on and raise uh, anything up to the biggest one was I think twelve million. Um, but typically they might leave and raise between one and a half to five million. So kind of like a, a beginning seed round. Um, so, uh, so, you know, as a consequence, we've been able to generate a lot of value in a fairly capital efficient way. Uh, I say that in terms of like capital deployed, but we have huge overhead. So, you know, I think at the moment we've probably got 25 full-time staff um, across everything from, regulatory compliance, token design, you know, general analysts, uh, syndication, you know, you name it, marketing, community building, um, now governance and uh, thinking these kind of things through. Um, so we have a, like compared to a fund, we have a comparatively high overhead cost base. Um, 
But in terms of the value that we managed to unlock, um, we, as I said, have managed to be very profitable for, for all seven years. So as a consequence, um, now it's rare that we would bring in a new partner unless they had strategic value. So it's not just that they kind of bring money to the table. It could be that they're um, an angel or family office that um, have strategic benefits. So that could be knowledge of a particular industry, um, you know, connections uh, for partnerships for our portfolio. It could be uh, we're just about to onboard a new partner who is um, one of the leading NFT collectors in the world. And so he's like very deep into NFTs. And so, um, you know, having somebody like that um, as a member in a partnership is beneficial. So, you know, we'll probably take on a couple of new partners each year, um, but it's dilutive because, you know, we're effectively a, a structured like a partnership, but you can think of the member units of that partnership as equity that has a value. Um, and then a lot of the members join for two different reasons. So um, the first reason is kind of the same as it always has been. You know, they're an individual or family office or small fund, and they just don't have the time expertise to navigate this space. Um, and so, you know, they kind of benefit from the collective DD that's done an outlier on network and the fact that we have a thousand startups um, uh, reply to us every uh, apply to us every year um, before we even go out and a bit more proactive. Um, so that deal flow sourcing and DD um, and then the process of acceleration and the support that we give to projects after the fact de-risks that investment for mm -hmm. members and partners because effectively they know that these projects um, are going to be accelerated. They're going to uh, close, close a seed round. They're going to be well capitalized and they're going to be able to start to unlock, you know, big partnerships or potentially have a successful token distribution event if there's a token. Um, so if I may ask you also, like in terms of like your collective DD, because it's a very interesting topic. So, so due diligence and how would you approach it and what's the major criteria for a project to be, you know, uh, to be onboarded and for even like to path the first stage? Yeah, so we have, um, it's about three stages to the DD process. And um, sometimes that's shortcutted um, if a project is referred to by what we call a venture partner. So mm -hmm. we've got about 20 venture partners, um, generally individuals who are deep within a particular niche. So it could be a subset of DeFi, a subset of NFTs or, or something else. Um, and if that venture partner recommends a project to us then it, it's fast-tracked into the second stage but generally it has three stages the first stage is kind of the mouth of the funnel where the thousand startups go into and we have um, a small team of analysts that will do basic dd on them so you know is this interesting just generally as a market opportunity um is the team credible um do they have code you know, stuff like that um, if they pass that bar, then they go into the second stage um, where we have an investment committee. That investment committee will look at that pipeline um, in any given week. Um, we normally have, because it's structured over a calendar, 
period we have like recruitment periods so each week in that calendar period there'll be um an investment committee that investment committee uh will comprise of about 10 of the members um, a couple of the staff and um the rest of the members and depending upon the mix of projects that we've got in because again we've got the benefit of a very diverse group of people who can understand you know um, financial services, people who worked at Goldman Sachs, um, you know, people who uh, ran Venture Arm for CME, um, uh, people who have kind of deep understanding in logistics, uh, like whatever it might be, uh, tel- uh, telecommunications, networking. Um, and at that stage, you know, we'll have an open discussion. We'll score projects um, based on some parameters um, and subject to them having a baseline score uh, and no hard challenge from a member, um, then uh, then it will move through to the next stage. And that's where much deeper DD will happen. So we have a team of technical analysts under our CTO and they'll go right into the code. You know, we'll seek for references if they say they have partnerships, like do they actually have these partnerships? We need to see the commercial agreements. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we go, we go really deep. So should a project uh, then get accepted? So bear in mind, you know, from a thousand applications a year, we'll work with 30. Um, we'll probably do deep due diligence on maybe 150. Um, and, you know, they don't have to get through to that selection criteria. So should a project enter the accelerator, you know, there's been a lot of due diligence been done on them. Of course, it never totally de-risks whether it will fail or not, although we've had a very high success rate so far. I think we've probably only had a couple of uh, startups that are no longer uh, with us um, out of, um, yeah, over 35 now, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that, that's kind of the, the process. It's pretty intense. Um, so we've just done that for, the cohort for 2021, our winter cohort starts second week of Jan. Um, and we pretty much got half the team on holiday for the last <laughs> week because they were just destroyed by that last DD process. Yeah, so so uh, really quickly, just to understand what the, the time frame, right? You know, uh, so the project submits an application, go through all the, the stages of, you know, like uh, uh, of uh, very thorough due diligence, right? So when would the project get an answer from you? typically? Yeah. So what we normally do is for the 10 that we select, I think conditional offers go out to about 15 um, Mm -hmm. because you usually then get into various discussions. Um, Our terms are fixed, but, you know, there are always uh, creative ways of making things work. So we get a lot of different stages of projects applying. So it could be anything, especially in DeFi, right? It could be just a team with a great concept. You know, they could be a, a, a killer, killer, group of solidity developers and you know rolling out a smart contract and sucking in you know a large amount of liquidity is is not so difficult um on the flip side we have big businesses that have customers that then want to token optimize what they're doing we even have some corporate spin outs so we've got one going into the ne- next cohort that is a spin out from a large automotive company um uh, ma- a major automotive brand and so it's a real spectrum and so you know there are some nuances uh, that that come with that and at the end of that 14 we we get to 10 
Um, we might even sneak in an 11th one this time just because we've had such good candidates. Um, but they usually know pretty quickly. So that mm -hmm. whole kind of contracting stage takes a week to 10 days. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so that's quick. Yeah. It's pretty good. Okay, so so again, I'm I'm gonna add all the links to your uh, website and to the due diligence process. There's a lot of information on uh, on your website, so I'm sure people who might be interested in the next cohort, if they're lucky enough to be with you, like you know, they're gonna have this chance. Um, and now I, I just build on that actually is that um, so so typically that's the accelerator. We do work with later stage projects. In the past, it's been a bit ad hoc. Um, so, for example, Secret Network, previously Enigma, we worked with post mainnet. Um, and we, we think we've done a good job, they're happy, and so we're probably going to start doing more of these. So we're going to soft launch something. So that's our accelerator is called Basecamp, but we're going to soft launch something called Ascent. So if you think about, you know, climbing a mountain, you Basecamp at the bottom, then you've got Ascent as you're climbing the top. So... Ascent will be for later stage projects. They could already have a live mainnet or be a Series A company. Um, and they have slightly different requirements. So that could be, well, okay, how do we grow community traction? How do we build out the capital market through market making, stuff like that? Mm -hmm. No, that's that's impressive. So I'm sure like, you know, so people who are in a pre-seed, seed stage or later stages, they will, might be interested to partner with you because it's such a, uh, I would say it's such a wealth of knowledge, you know, that you've amassed with all your partners. So yeah, highly recommend it. Uh, but, you know, I, I really want to jump into other topic, you know, which is uh, your thought leadership and your report. So one of the reasons why I was excited also to, uh, <laughs> to have this interview, because I've read some of your reports and uh, they're pretty, like pretty impressive, you know, how you put up together like the, uh, the synopsis of like, you know, the, 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 the tokenomics, like the previously, you know, a few years ago, you did that. Now you've put up like a three layer um, explanation of uh, uh, how we got from the broken DeFi and the retail DeFi to the institutional grade DeFi. So again, without further ado, like, you know, can you elaborate a little bit more like of this, uh, uh, how did we, you know, got through this five-year-long DeFi hype cycle and what's likely to happen in your opinion? Yeah, so um, maybe I'll kind of just give a, a quick framing before I start sharing um, uh, some of the information on various sure. papers. So um, obviously, you know, with, with what happened uh, with DeFi this year, 2020, coming out of spring and into the summer, I think just the pace of it, the rate of innovation surprised everybody. You know, so it wasn't that we weren't expecting DeFi to happen. Um, our accelerator, you know, already had several projects that you would class as DeFi in it, um, either directly or indirectly. But in the rate of innovation, the amount of liquidity it sucked in, and then, of course, DEXs surpassing um, a lot of wallets or centralized exchanges, um, really caught everybody by surprise. And of course you had then food protocols, liquidity mining, um, lots of really interesting uh, innovations. And so for us, that really uh, cemented our belief in the power of DeFi. Um, and I, I kind of frame that as, um, if, you, if you think of DeFi in the context of 
traditional finance. So traditional finance is monopolized. Um, it's pretty closed. The barrier to participate is very high for regulatory reasons. Um, and so there is no requirement to innovate. So you have incredibly inefficient, costly intermediaries who have no incentive to innovate. And um, you have a poor to no competition in the market. And so it pretty much stagnates and the consequence is the end user suffers. And it's kind of um, ironic, really, if you think about the role of a regulator, on the one hand, it is to protect retail investors um, and stop fraud. But on the other hand, it is to create competition and a better outcome for end users, retail users. And clearly that's not happening in yeah. financial services. And you can say that's by accident or by construct, you know, who, who, difficult to say, probably a combination of both. But the promise of DeFi is because of its permissionless na nature, because it's built on open source prot protocols, which allow for um, this composability and people to take an innovation, tweak it, deploy it, um, as if it's an entirely new thing. Um, it is actually a kind of a competition max, right? It's like the most competitive um, environment. And the competition has to do two things. It has to deliver yield. Um, so if you compare that to negative yield uh, on your savings in a traditional bank account in some countries, or like 1% if you're lucky, um, and then efficiency. It has to strip away all the, the costs of that. And so there's this hyper-competitive environment to remove costs, to remove intermediaries, um, and at the same time to find ways to deliver yield. So that is all really exciting. I, I believe it is impossible for the existing financial services industry to ever compete with that. It will just increasingly uh, co-opt it, which is what incumbents always do. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you can see that starting to happen with Bitcoin now just as a, as a, as a single asset. Um, but increasingly, it's going to happen with DeFi. So, so that was kind of our belief. But then you looked at DeFi as it was um, in the summer and to a degree now. Um, it was, we believed it was fundamentally broken. So what it proved was that you could suck in billions of dollars of liquidity very quickly um, into a network for borrowing and lending um, by offering this kind of yield. And ultimately that yield was based on um, effectively pre-selling supply, monetary supply in your system, right? So, um, which is long-term, well, if you think about it as a form of subsidized marketing, right? You run a marketing campaign for a period of time right? Uh, you can't run in perpetuity a free service or, or worse, paying your customer to use your, use your service forever, yeah. right? Now, of course, Silicon Valley VC does this all the time with like Ubers and stuff, loss-making companies. Amazon is notoriously loss-making um, as you acquire market share. But, you know, you need to be incredibly well capitalized to do that and you need to be able to lock in uh, users and customers. And so, the problem with DeFi was that uh, it was caught in this uh, race to the bottom of um, high yield and low fees. Um, and so that's easy to do if you 
short term want to debase your economy, but it's like long term unsustainable. So that kind of really triggered off this exercise of saying, well, what could fix this? You know, what, Mm -hmm. how could you make, how could you benefit from this um, uh, liquidity bootstrapping and and, um, acquisition strategy, um, but have a way of closing the loop and making these systems more long-term sustainable? Uh, So, you know, we've got a lot of people at Outlier where we started kind of thinking on this internally, kicking things around. One of the great privileges of, of Outlier, to be honest with you, is increasingly I need less people working for me at Outlier as analysts because we've got this growing portfolio. So mm-hmm. um, I can now, you know, put a half-formed straw man of a thesis to our portfolio and say, what do you think? And we have a Google Doc and they kind of feed back with comments. Um and so this thing like blossomed into a three-part uh, uh, blog post and kind of uh, thesis, really, of DeFi 2.0. So what what could be the things that would fundamentally allow DeFi to move into a new chapter um, and become more sustainable? And so once we kind of kicked this around with our portfolio, I then extended that out to our co-investor network, you know, some of the biggest VCs in the space and some that are almost exclusively looking at DeFi in a way that I'm not. DeFi is one of three thesis areas, NFTs, DeFi, and uh, new data economy. And so again, I just had the, the huge privilege of uh, that brain trust, being able to tap into that brain trust. So that's kind of the framing. Um, mm-hmm. That's what led to this three-part series that I will uh, share with you now. So, yeah, going well. I think you need to enable uh, screen sharing my side. Yeah, just a second. So I did that. Yes, you have it. Okay. And again, for someone who's going to listen in uh, via podcast, like, so we're going to try to comment everything and you can always go to outlierventures.io uh, and download the, the documents. It's free. Uh, and uh, yeah, those are very, very interesting. So yeah, you're, we now share your, yeah, I see your screen now. So, yeah, so this is the homepage. Um, as, uh, as you just said, we, um, we've published, constantly published our thinking as research since inception. Um, and that's not totally altruistic. It's because we find we get better feedback. Like we, we just can't figure this stuff out ourselves. So the more openly we publish our thinking, the better feed- yeah. feedback. The more feedback you're going to get. Yeah. And right. the, the, the better you're going to grow. Like, and yeah, I understand it's a collective wisdom. It's very, very smart of you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so this is the, the website and we have a, a research section, which you can find uh, here, mm-hmm. and you can find all of our reports in there from the last, you know, almost seven years, going all the way back to our convergence paper, our convergence thesis, which led us to invest in things like ocean and stuff like that. Um, but the ones that we're going to talk about today are uh, this series, which is the broken DeFi hype cycle mm-hmm. with appropriate uh, food protocol. Um, <laughs> I love the sushi picture. Yes, sushi swap. Yeah. So this kind of lays out the, um, uh, it kind of builds upon what I just said there in terms of the framing. Mm-hmm. 
But by the end of putting together this report, um, I became increasingly convinced that DeFi 2.0 was a thing. It was going to happen much more quickly than anybody would think, and that there would be this major bull run. And so, interestingly, I don't think the bull run that's just happened with Bitcoin and ETH is this mega bull run. I think that was just the prelude to um, what's going to happen in 2021. So I'm even more excited um, uh, as a consequence of thinking through this thesis than um, I am now just looking at the, the markets as they are. Um, and we kind of put a flag in the sand there and we said, well, look, let's put a number on it. Um, so if 2017 ICO mania was 600 billion, let's mm -hmm. say it's going to be a, a, a doubling of, of that um, and a mainstreaming around users. And we, we ended up producing a, a report. So it's kind of a bit easier to digest than in this blog post. And you can download that there. Um, but effectively, I, I kind of outlined as I said, the power of DeFi um, and also this kind of DeFi paradox, right? So um, on the one hand, you are optimizing for um, uh, efficiency and removing of costs. On the other hand, you're trying to offer the highest yield. And so how do you resolve that, um, that conflict? Um, and so what I proposed was, is if you look at the innovations that drove 2017, Obviously, it was the ERC-20 standard that allowed a new form of crowdfunding mechanism, which was a new form of supply that came into the market. Mm -hmm. And then you had um, centralized exchanges and, of course, um, uh, bringing the demand. So bringing new users into the system in order that they could participate, speculate. And so really, if we're going to have a mega cycle, then two things need to happen. You can't just have more supply. Um, you need to also find a way to create more demand. Um, and so that was the kind of overriding principle. Um, if you looked at DeFi, it was still, despite what happened in some, a very small subset of even crypto. So not only did it not bring in any new users, um, it was only like 1% of crypto that was using it. So it was interesting, but it was like nowhere near the hype cycle, a, a kind of ICO mania hype cycle. And you know, some people might argue, well, do, why would you want that? Um, I would argue these things are just inherent in innovation as capital markets form. And ultimately, whilst seemingly wait, wasteful, a lot of great infrastructure got built as a consequence of ICM mania. So if I may pause you for a second here. So I, I, I hear a lot of... Uh... I would say, uh, pretty skeptical uh, comments from the people who actually went through the ICO cycle, like, and and they have this aftertaste of losing, like, you know, eighty percent of their portfolio or more, <laughs> and they're saying, well, DeFi is almost the same, you know, it's nothing changed, it's just like ICO on steroids, and they just tweaked a little bit, like, you know, some things, uh, but it's gonna, uh, it's gonna have the same consequences. So, what would be your reply to you know, those critics? Well, I think it's absolutely right. I think that DeFi as it was, to a degree as it is, um, was less impactful than ICOs, I would argue, because at least with ICOs, some infrastructure, big infrastructure did get built. It got billions of dollars that it would have never got through venture to build open source technology. And if you like pause on that for a second, mm -hmm. that's huge. 
right? So yeah. for the first time ever, billions and billions of dollars went into open source technology. That's why Web3 is primarily open um, versus going into proprietary technology. So for me, that's always a good thing. Yes, it's messy. It's wasteful. Um, and people that invest in things they don't understand should expect to lose money, Um <laughs> Ultimately, I, I don't invest in things I don't understand. Um, uh, so, you know, I don't mean to sound cold or callous, but at the end of the day, you either operate on the principle that everybody should be able to participate in the wealth generation that happens with Web3, or you say, actually, no, certain people shouldn't. And that depends on where you sit on the planet. Mm -hmm. In Europe, we've got a fairly laissez-faire approach to that in the US it's much more restrictive yeah. which one's right I don't know but at the end of the day um, if you want to speculate in wealth creation and this is probably one of the biggest wealth creation events humanity's ever going to experience um, some risk comes with that right there is no uh, reward without risk so um, so that's kind of my main argument and then the second one is going back to what I was saying earlier like if we can create a more efficient um, and yield-bearing capital market infrastructure that anybody can use, I'm all for that, right? I think that's a, a goal worth pursuing. And that is the trajectory that DeFi is on. Now, does that mean um, there won't be scams? Absolutely. And by the way, that's going to be a byproduct of regulation again, because um, Ineffective regulation forces anonymity of founder and anonymity of founder allows for rug pulling and stuff like that. So oh, yeah. actually it's again, counterproductive. There's so much counterproductive regulation that happens uh, in this space that actually doesn't protect retail investors. Um, and um, so anyway, that, that's kind of my, my rant. Yeah. No, that. that's totally. And by the way, for someone who doesn't know what a rug plug is, is when the anonymous founder just like does the cash out and uh, we never know about his existence anymore. <laughs> so that's very right. simple. And by the way, these things, again, these can yeah. be fixed. The, the innovation is already there where you can have smart contract vesting. So, you know, projects only get so much money. Um, uh, the founders only get access to so much, you know, you can have controls built in. It's just that you need to have happens, a desire to do that. Yeah. The problem that happens, right. When you start getting this, these hype cycles is that it becomes a seller's market. So when it's a buyer's market, you get much more classic venture behavior, right? A VC will say, well, I'm not just going to, you know, hand over 50 million to you and hope you deliver it. Um, you know, I, I'm going to want to see various checks and balances in place that come yeah. with being a shareholder in a company, right? Um, and so sometimes they will even insist that they form an equity-based business um, before you launch the token network in order that they can have the rights of a shareholder. Now, what happened in 2017 was that people just raised through SAFTs. SAFTs, um, at least in that form, gave no right to anything, actually. It was like, if there is a mm -hmm. token, um, you will get a percentage discount on that token. So it's a right to a token that m might happen. Um, and, you know, the kind of the discipline of venture was lost in that kind of environment. And DeFi was the same, right? Everybody wanted to be, they were seeing these kind of crazy returns. 
Um, and so everyone was just rushing to get their money into the thing that would deliver them that return. And so again, it was a seller's market. People could just spin a postmark contract. It wasn't audited. Nobody knew if they could just pull the money or not. Um, so that's just poor investing discipline. Sadly, yeah. it is a byproduct of um, where you are on a hype cycle in crypto. But I think increasingly these things will get ironed out of the system as the industry professionalizes. Yeah. No, it's like in this movie, Vanity is uh, my favorite sin, you know? So, <laughs> so I, yeah, the greed's actually, you know, psychologically, I think it dominates our consciousness on investing. Like I've read one of the reports that from the behavior uh, psychology standpoint, behavioral economics, like 80% of investments are done, are done emotionally. Like, unfortunately, that's like very real in DeFi space. But I want to ask you more about, so we're we're uh, looking at your report and you know the the, the summary of it. So you you mentioned here that uh, some of the early innovations uh, in uh, in the space were incomplete. So yeah, we have amazing stable coins project. We have yield generating like you know some of them are paying out crazy yields and people are again are excited. Oh oh my god, I'm gonna have like 20, 30 percent, maybe 100 percent like you know year to day. Not a single bank will provide me that. But here right. comes the risk perspective, which a lot of people obviously they prefer, I would say, to skip uh, uh, just because they're they want to have a great return. So let's talk a little bit about it. So what can be improved practically? What mechanism do we have right now in 2020 and 2021 of course? Yeah, so she said, you know, in a way that ICO mania was driven by the RC20 standard and centralized exchanges here in DeFi, we see two supply side innovations, stable coins and yield generating protocols, right? But there's there's no demand there. That's pure, um, pure supply side. Um, and so really everyone was just engaged in a game of chicken. Everybody knew there wasn't new demand coming into the system. And if there's not new demand coming into the system, then ultimately you're just hoping uh, you're, you're the first one out the door before uh, the next person comes in. And so yeah, it reminds a little bit of Ponzi scheme, unfortunately. <laughs> well, right. And, but look, you know, there are so many things in the world that actually, if you look at them hard, look like Ponzi schemes, right? Yeah. It's just, some Ponzi schemes actually deliver value. Um and, uh, you know, I think there's a very, as you say, very strong profit motive behind crypto. Um, and that ultimately is the engine, the driver that brings capital into the space. Um, and as I said, this is the largest wealth generation event probably ever. Um, so there is a lot of money to be made. But again, you know, you have to go in with your eyes wide open. So, um so you started to see things like governance tokens obviously come through. So that was a, another way to incentivize people to uh, participate. Um, and you know, there's some considerations there, by the way, where if you have additional asset that is both yield bearing and right bearing, sounds a lot like equity. Um, and so could be regarded as a security. Now, I think like everything in crypto, you kick that can down the road and regulators may or may not catch up. Um, but, you know, if we look at these kind of limitations, really um, there were some uh, structural problems to the, the technology that meant that the kind of transactions that could happen in DeFi were prohibitively high to a retail customer um, that would hopefully be solved by two and or, you know, any other alternative. Um, and so these things are being solved for, right? They, they will be solved for. And so you will have more of a democratization of DeFi. Mm -hmm. But you could also argue, 
it was kind of beneficial that it was prohibitively high whilst it's still in this kind of wild west. You actually don't want, you know, every man and his dog to be able to kind of lose uh, their small savings. Um, so we then go into uh, what can fix this. And so there's two parts to this. We probably won't have time to talk through at all, but the most important one to kind of focus on is um, DeFi and NFTs. So um, when we say NFTs, we mean non-fungible token. Um, you can think of non-fungible as pretty much everything in the world other than currency and maybe some commodities like electricity. Like you don't care what electricity it is. Um, as long as it's electricity, you don't care what pound note you have in your hand, it's pound note. Everything else is unique and you care, you know, if it's this car, you don't just want any Mercedes. You want to know it's this Mercedes with certain mileage or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, and once you understand it in that context, to allow for forms of digital value to be captured that are non-fungible is huge, right? And so this could be applied into any number of things. The most immediate applications are things like digital art, digital collectibles, gaming, in-gaming in goods. Um, but... Uh, what most people, I think, haven't yet fully realized is that the power of NFTs um, can also be felt in the context of loyalty. So if you could think that you can have a programmable form of reward, mm -hmm. um, and what's interesting about having a form of programmable reward, that isn't your underlying currency, your underlying economy economic kind of atomic unit is that you can reward people with it without having to debase your currency, um, which in DeFi currently is you're just basically giving away supply. Um, uh, so you, you can do that. You can give yield, but you can give a more sustainable form of yield. And on top, you can give um, NFT, a form of NFT um, that will have value uh, on its own. Um, and so like one way of um, thinking about that is what you see um, with, uh, um, with, Ax um, oh, sorry, I had total memory blank of the name, um, Ave. And oh, yeah, Ave. I just, I just I had a panel with uh, Stani. He was on my panel. So yeah. Yeah. He, so he's a good friend of outliers and um and actually, what's cool about Ave Gotche is it's a game built on top of Ave that rewards certain behaviors on Ave. Um, and I believe it was developed uh, at a hackathon, so it wasn't developed by Ave themselves. But effectively, you're layering a game on top of your economic system, and a form of value is generated by being a good actor, basically. Um, and so I think experiments, and again, remember that an NFT can almost do anything, um, experiments in gamification for rewards and loyalty. Mm -hmm. um, what that does is it allows you to close the loop. So you have this acquisition strategy, which is the yield um, to bootstrap a network. But then you have this loyalty mechanism to close the loop and to hopefully lock users into the system. Um, and again, like, yes, you can 
have that with uh, governance tokens. But the problem with governance tokens is that it's not always preferable or optimal to be governed by a large group of people, mm-hmm. especially if you're an early stage startup, if you follow you know, well, uh, well understood methodologies of lean startup, you know, you actually want to be able to iterate really quickly. You don't want to have to reach consensus as you're trying to find product market fit and evolve your solution. So in the context of having a project that you want a pathway to decentralization, maybe starting out relatively centralized or centralized enough to still be classed as DeFi, of course. Um, Loyalty is a great mechanism where it doesn't dilute the power of the executive in the early stages, and um, it doesn't debase your kind of economic unit, your your monetary supply and policy within that economy. yeah. So if I may ask you just a question, you know, for one of the examples I was uh, talking with uh, my friends, um, like one of the obvious examples, for example, air, uh, air miles, you know, like, you know, if, if only right now some of the air companies would try to apply this mechanism we're talking about now, like, you know, it's going to be a huge game changer. And I think right now they're becoming more and more flexible as, you know, the, the industry is getting a little bit crushed uh, with the pandemic, you know, so... What do you think, like, or maybe some other, like, you know, very practical applications that can, like, not only dramatically change the the, the industry, but also can practically uh, help, you know, people who are using it anyway? Yeah. Well, so, again, over the years, like, we've seen lots of startups pitches, um, uh, blockchain loyalty, air miles, I mean, you name it, right? Yeah. And actually, the problem is this. When you think about it, um Loyalty points, unredeemed loyalty points, are a liability. And so if you look at the liability of unredeemed loyalty point um, air miles, it, if everybody all of a sudden could redeem those and trade them, it would bankrupt most airlines. So it's actually not in their interest to make these things more liquid. Yeah. Um, and that's true for a lot of forms of loyalty in large multinationals. Um So I think that's probably less interesting. It it should be, and I think long-term it will be, but like for an incumbent to effectively um, realize that liability at scale, uh, I don't know. Um, So, (laughs) but but it's the right kind of thinking, like in terms of the application of NFTs. So one of the other things that I think is going to really help DeFi, DeFi 2.0 in the context of retail. So, if you think about what was driving DeFi, it was largely, as we said, stable coins and or ETH, Bitcoin, wrapped Bitcoin as collateral. Um, and there's only so many people on the planet that are going to go and buy that, right? Um, stable coins obviously makes it a little bit easier. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, like going and buying a form of digital currency isn't what most people are going to do. They haven't done it. They're not going to do it. Um, and so you know, the people that would then participate in DeFi is limited. Now, I'm not saying it's not going to happen. It will happen. But um, if that's the only kind of collateral that you can use in DeFi, it's quite limiting. Yeah. So what's also really interesting about uh, NFTs, and I'm trying to find the formula there, yeah. So what's also really interesting about NFTs, as I said, is that 
they are being exponentially adopted now, safe to say, in domains like digital art, collectibles, social currencies, um, gaming. Uh, so all of these things already have ready-made, billions of ready-made users, right? That is people collecting art. Okay, that's a bit more of a subset. You know, collectibles, more of a subset. Gaming, huge in-game credits, um, huge, bigger than crypto combined, probably. Um, uh, you have, um, uh, you know, music, musicians are now starting to adopt these things. And then social currency. So you're starting to get influencers that are creating NFTs. And, uh, you know, these people already have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers in TikTok, um, Instagram, Twitter. Um, now, NFTs in this context are typically highly visual, but you don't need to understand crypto to understand any of these use cases. So, mm -hmm. you know, a really cool gift flies past you and it says, well, this is digital. There's only going to be 50 of these digital kinds. You can buy it now. Um, then uh, uh, that's, that's easy to get your head around. So that is going to onboard NFTs as an asset class are going to onboard um, millions, billions of new um, users into crypto that would have never participated in it previously um, in a pure kind of currency perspective. Now, once you start having billions of dollars worth of NFT as collateral, um, and to give you an extreme example, uh, so with um, Axie Infinities, right, which is an NFT game, um, where you kind of have playing cards that are NFTs and, and you know, you can breed them, but you also um, uh, kind of an evolution of CryptoKitties, really. Yeah. <laughs> there are whole villages in, um, in Southeast Asia that, of course, there's no, no work now, but everything's going on with COVID. They are the whole villages that are surviving purely on playing Axie Infinity. So they've so, earned these NFTs. So they earn money on, by playing a game. They play the game all day, yeah, in, in gaming cafes. Um, and, and this is like whole villages, right? They're earning more than they could in any other job per day. Um, and how, how much are we talking about just to, to bring them up? Well, so if you're kind of just churning, they, they kind of, there's a spectrum, right? So, and it's really based upon the quality of cards that you're playing with. So there's like an elite level, like esports level. Um, we're actually looking at sponsoring an Axie Infinity esports team. Um, and they, they need to have the best cards to, to play at that level, right? So, mm -hmm. And some of these cards can be tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth. Um, so that's prohibitively high, but the, the stakes for that are very high, like tournaments, you know, are, are, are big business. Um, if you're talking about people who are just churning, so people playing with low-value cards that you could pick up for tens of dollars, um, and they're just kind of playing back-to-back -back all day, they might make $15, right? $15, $20. Now, to you and me, that's not that much a day. Um, but to somebody in India, Africa, parts of Latin America, Southeast Asia, um, that's that's a, a really good, good salary. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, these people are earning digital wealth. And the first digital wealth they earn are NFTs. And they're going to look to try and move that out of an NFT into uh, into something that they can buy food with right so they're then going to start that journey of okay well how do i how do i sell this as an asset um probably going to have to buy eth or bitcoin then you know find an off-ramp to get that into dollars um 
So what that's going to do is you're, you're, you're growing this digital economy. And I'd say that the other extreme example is, you know, kids. When I say kids, I mean, I'm 39 now, right? So maybe people below 20. I don't know what classifies as a kid. Everybody feels like a kid to me increasingly. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, you know, so there are, there are people now that, you know, I don't know, 80% of their waking day is playing games, right? And they're earning in-game items. Um, they're not very portable at the moment, you know, it's it's not not like a, a, a kind of a crypto asset that you can move around. It's kind of in-game, mm-hmm. but they, they can make reasonable money. Um, so there is a generation that is alive now whose wealth will primarily be digital forever, right? And so the question will be, how do they leverage that digital wealth to acquire things in the real world? And so whether you're an NFT game farmer in in Southeast Asia, or you're a 16-year-old kid in New York who's, you know, playing games, increasingly your wealth is going to be digital. You're going to be brought into crypto as a consequence of NFTs, and your wealth is going to be in the form of an NFT, probably, as a form of collateral. And so increasingly, you're going to start to see NFTs as collateral in DeFi. Well, wait a minute, I don't want to sell this Axie Infinity card because I want to use it, but I want to borrow some money. I need to borrow 50 bucks to buy some food or 500 bucks to pay my rent. Um, and once I paid my rent and maybe, you know, played a little bit more, got some money and I'm going to buy back that, buy back that card. So you've already got things like um, uh, Nifty Fi. Um, I actually interviewed him on. So I want to try to steal some of your YouTube followers because you've got, you've got more than me. So we've got a YouTube channel um, called Outlier Ventures and uh, in there, we do, we do interviews <laughs> with some analysts. Well, we can share, maybe not steer, we share. For sure. Um, and so you can go there. We did an interview with a guy who runs, the founder who runs NFTFi. And effectively, this is borrowing and lending against anything from a crypto kitty to you name it. Um, and, uh, you know, people are borrowing either to survive in the real world or to kind of speculate on a new game that's coming out and bootstrap an art collection, you name it. And so as more collateral in DeFi is NFTs, you're going to have, this is going to mainstream DeFi where this is just where parts of the world or certain generations borrow and lend money. And when you Mm -hmm. say like, they're not unbanked, they're never going to be banked. Why would they want a bank? A bank's incredibly inefficient. It doesn't give them yield. It has all these fees when they can just deposit some collateral in a decentralized pool, borrow some ETH or Bitcoin. I can imagine some people getting getting mortgages on NFTs in the next even year. Wow. That's... That's a pretty bullish uh, statement to me, but I I, I want to trust you on this. Like you know, um, you know I listen the the entire e-commerce space. I had a, a pleasure once to uh, help organizing one of the events and uh, and the West Coast. You know there was a competition of World of Warcraft, like the Dota. You know like I'm yeah. some some of the folks who are gamers are familiar with it. And there was uh, uh, I think three teams. One was from China, one was from Korea, and one was from Ukraine. I know kids just literally all, all, everyone is under 30, like, you know, playing all game eight to 10 hours, like just training, like in their room, they haven't left the hotel room. Like, you know, just, it's just insane to me, like in a beautiful weather, like, you know, everything and no, not a single time. 
long story short, like, you know, then I realized that the winner actually got $300,000, like, you know, just for, for three days playing a game. Yeah. And then they told me that in Seattle, back in the days, like, you know, it's a few years ago, the, 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 the championship in Dota was the $18 million prize for the first uh, uh, place. And then, like, you know, in scaling, like, you know, uh, $10 million, whatever, $4 million. And now it's growing. The entire industry right now, as I understand, it's about... 950 million dollars like you know in 2020 and it's going to grow uh probably 1.6 billion dollars by 2023 so yeah i do believe that right now the marketplaces are like you know with you know the emergence of non-fungible tokens and specifically the ability to as you've mentioned to somehow transfer this particular like you know unique value from one platform to the other platform and either cash out or somehow exchange value or even buy something just simply buy and uh, something use it as a collateral that's a huge market and considering that we're like i'm also a little bit uh, older than 20 year old guys so yeah so we are a different generation so we're like kind of millennials and there's like the the new uh, alphas, you know, the coming, this is going to be, yeah, this is going to be big market. So I'm, yeah, I'm excited that uh, people like you are actually trying to apply older knowledge and older, like, uh, I would say, uh, infrastructure to, to educate people in this, like, and to help to, to thrive, you know, and to get where it needs to get. I'm a little bit less bullish than you, to be frank, that is going to happen in one year. It's, I would say it's probably going to take a few years more just because it's such a, uh, it's still a complex process. And from the technological uh, like, uh, perspective, you need to educate yourself how to do that, like, you know, using MetaMask, using all, all other, like, you know, means of exchange. So, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, like, if we were to summarize, like, how do we go from retail, you know, like, to institutional grade DeFi, like, you know, how, what's the leap? What's the major, I would say, um, you know, premise here? Yeah, well, it's funny you say that. I've got a post. Uh, the second part of it is <laughs> on institutional. Here's one I prepared earlier um, for institutional adoption. So obviously, this is this is very different, and you can understand institutional. We could define institutional DeFi in many different ways. So for me, that's everything from a crypto native business, a business whose um, you know P and L and operations, daily operations, are primarily exposed to crypto that are excluded from a lot of um, banking still, even to this day. Um, you've got you know, financial firms, professional traders, family offices, hedge funds, banks, pension funds, of course, pension funds being the more extreme end of ever, ever touching this stuff. Fintech firms, I think it's interesting as you're starting to see uh, fintech firms like Square making most of their profits from Bitcoin, right? Selling Bitcoin. You think that most fintech firms are loss making most fintech apps are loss-making. They're heavily venture-backed. Um, and it's kind of like a, a winner-takes-all or they get acquired. Like, that's the game plan. Mm -hmm. um, so actually, you know, looking at DeFi as a sandbox that they can just plug in features once they've been tested enough to offer new forms of yield to customers um, is going to be a great way for them to develop a competitive advantage and become profitable businesses. So you can think of fintech firms almost as a distribution channel for DeFi. Um, and then you've kind of got the general commercial unbanked. So, you know, in most parts of the world, SMEs, entrepreneurs, 
especially early stage startups, struggle to access credit. Um, and so, uh, you know, there are industries, whether that's just a classic uh, SME, an entrepreneur, or industries like gambling or the adult industry, um, which or, yeah, I get not so much now, I guess, in the US, but you know, previously the marijuana industry, notoriously difficult to kind of finance and operate their businesses. Um, so they're going to be the first ones that start tapping into DeFi. So that's kind of the spectrum of institutional DeFi. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we kind of think, well, what is required? Well, the first thing, if we, if we sequence institutional adoption before we get into what's acquired, um, well, the first goal of DeFi should be to onboard the 95% of people in crypto that don't care about DeFi or that, that kind of wouldn't, wouldn't feel able to use it. Um, and so there's a couple of ways of, of, of looking at that. Um, so, you know, the primary reason, and we can break it down a little bit, but it's the level of risk in DeFi, um, and, uh, and rightfully so, right? Because again, DeFi 1.0, you know, I mean, no serious institution is going to participate in that. Like, um, I wouldn't participate in it, so I can't imagine <laughs> a, a pension fund doing it, right? Um, uh, but what's interesting here is we've got some innovation triggers. So, um, again, we've got NFTs, although NFTs not necessarily in the context I just described, but other forms of collateral. So, for example, an insurance contract, an insurance policy could be an NFT. Mm-hmm. It could be bought and sold in an open market um, freely. Um, there are things around uh, confidentiality solutions, Um uh, DIDs, decentralized identifiers, which is an identity standard uh, that's being pushed by the World Wide Web uh, Foundation, but a number of other actors. Um, things like verifiable claims, where you can um, prove something without revealing the underlying data. You can do that in a zero-knowledge proof context. Um, and then things like AAs, autonomous economic agents. Um, so build increasingly building in levels of uh, machine learning capability to allow for more complex smart contracting on-chain, but interactions with machine learning off-chain. And I'll explain why all these things are going to be relevant. Um, so that's kind of the supply side. And then the demand side are going to be things like, I, I just call as a shorthand, D-prime brokerages. Prime brokerages um, that effectively bundle DeFi solutions in a nice UX, make them usable, um, and um, solve for some of the risk management and compliance that goes around that. Uh, a lot of the compliance issues in DeFi around counterparty risk, you know, knowing who you're trading with, if you're a regulated entity, um, you can't transact um, in markets with, um, with uh, an entity that's not regulated. You mm-hmm. risk losing your license. Um, and then ETFs, so the idea that you can abstract direct ownership of the underlying assets and still benefit from like an index, for example, um, in DeFi. So I've already kind of covered off non-fungible tokens, so I don't need to go into that too much. Um, as I mentioned, confidentiality solutions. So things um, that allow for pseudo-anonymous actors um, but that can come with a degree of confidence that you're dealing with somebody that you should be dealing with and not somebody that you shouldn't be dealing with. I'll unpack that a little bit later. Um, so let's just go straight into some of the applications. Um, 
So these, I believe these technical innovations, when they combine, will allow for um, an evolved DeFi 2.0 toolkit that will allow protocols, prime brokerages, supply and a demand to more effectively um, grow institutional adoption. Um, so the first area is compliance. As I said, you know, this is a big area of risk. Yeah. And it is primarily centered around counterparty risk, as I said. So the idea that, you know, if you're a DeFi protocol, you can't KYC and AML a user, even if you wanted to. Of course, most don't want to ethically, mm -hmm. principally, but even if you wanted to, you couldn't. Um, because the minute that you perform KYC and AML, so know your customer or anti-money laundering, on a party, you become a counterparty to them. That is a regulated activity. So immediately you become centralized and regulated. Yeah. So it's just it impossible. It's the purpose, yeah. Yeah, impossible to do. Um, but actually what's interesting is there are innovations, as I mentioned earlier, in things like DIDs, decentralized identifiers, where a trusted party can perform KYC and AML on a wallet, so who is the owner of the wallet? Where did the funds come from? And they can then say this wallet has passed KYC and AML, maybe for a period of time or on a certain amount of funds. Um, that uh, proof um, could be read by a DeFi protocol. So it could say, I'm only going to let people that have a proof that they've been verified by somebody else, not us, but a trusted verifier somewhere in a verification marketplace. And they might whitelist and blacklist verifiers if, if they wanted to. Um, and so they can say, well, if a regulator knocks on the door, well, I'm sure that they were KYC'd and AML because here's the proof, but I've no idea who they are. So I haven't carried that out myself. And so they can remain totally decentralized. They can remain compliant so they can um, allow for greater adoption, um, but they can um, you know, rely upon... Uh, other other parties to carry that out. Wow, that's um, impressive. May I ask you who who practically allows to implement this uh, this uh, mechanism? So there are lots of people playing around with DIDs, like Microsoft, IBM. Uh, there's an entity called Evanim that we invested in, and they're rolling out something called Sovereign. The Sovereign Foundation um, was the first attempt at that, but they had regulatory problems because they're out of the US. That's now being forked um, by us and a group of other investors. Um, and community members to stand up a network outside of the US, which will effectively allow for it's a protocol designed specifically for high volume, low value um, proofs to happen at universal scale. Um, now, what would then happen on top of that is you would need people who are in the business of KYC and AML, and there are innumerable ones of these servicing the financial industry already. Um, and effectively, when they carried out that KYC and they would just issue a proof and um, away you go. You've got the proof. It's probably time sensitive. Um, every DeFi protocol on the planet can then be compliant. And this is like around the corner. Um, I, I was amazed th this kind of idea came up talking to people. Nobody else had thought of this idea, which was really weird because it felt kind of really obvious when you when you think about it, if you're aware of DIDs. Um, so, so that was the, the, the first thing, um, is uh, allowing for that kind of expansion. You can then also have the idea that 
if I'm carrying out, so, so then if I'm an institution in a DeFi pool, I can be sure that the people in that pool are also KYC'd and AML'd. And therefore, mm-hmm. as an institution, I can know that I'm the counterparties I'm dealing with are compliant. You then got risk management. So, you know, because of the composability of DeFi, there's huge amounts of risk, loads of attack vectors. Um, again, really easy to solve for insurance, you know. So there are um, already a number of protocols that are solving for um, decentralized insurance um, with things like mutualization. Um, so almost every industry on the planet, um, when it was a new industry, had to insure itself communally because no insurer could price risk. They wouldn't insure them. So that's why in France, for example, I think you mentioned Paris, you've got these huge uh, now mainstream retail insurers, but they started out for farmers, farmer cooperatives, insuring one another mm. against crop, you know, uh, problems with crop. So that's going to happen in DeFi. It's going to happen in crypto. Crypto is going to insure crypto because only crypto can price risk in crypto. That risk will be mutualized. So Nexus Mutual are, are kind of leading the way there. But interestingly, these insurance policies can then also be NFTs. They can become collateral and assets that could be traded. So again, you're going to start to see um, insurance policy as collateral used in DeFi. And institutions can take out risk um, for their usage of DeFi um, and all kinds of flavors. And so that could be Oracle risk. You know, it could be slippage. It could be a hack. You know, you name it. It's coming. It's happening. This is this is a really impressive topic. I have so many questions. Like that, we'll probably need to do like a separate session because it's uh, in terms of collateral. Like you know, I I would be curious to understand how is it possible to actually audit this. Like you know, how to make sure because you have several layers of collateral, right? You know that increases your risk. You know, so but again, it's not to go deeper in in it now. Yeah, and and by the way, like I'm, I definitely don't have the nuanced solution to this. So like one of the reasons why we put out a thesis like this is it's to invite people who are saying, well, I'm already working on this particular problem or um, I I've built this innovation, but I actually think it could be applied to this because mm-hmm. what we want is like people to solve these problems. Now it would be great if they're solving a problem and they want to apply to our accelerator, like that, that'd be wonderful. Please do. But even if they don't do that, like these are things we all need solved, right? And if people solve it, then DeFi grows, crypto grows as an asset class, everybody makes a lot of money. So um, I just want to see these things solved. Um, and a lot of the people that I consulted to help draft this thesis want to see this solved. And so like we did a little bit of thinking about ways that you could solve it, but I mean, there are a number of different ways that you could tackle any of these things. Mm-hmm. And we definitely haven't, given a detailed nuanced example of exactly how you do it but like just broad brushstrokes of what's what's possible if you combine a did with a nft right and nobody's done it yet somebody's going to do it um then you've got things like um uh i've probably skipped to trustful oracles so again you know our oracles as we have increasingly automated smart contracts in DeFi and um, automated markets 24-7 with no break. It's not like a NASDAQ where something something happens on it and they can just freeze everything for a day and say, well, come back tomorrow, we're going to reset stuff. I mean, this is like on. Um, and if something breaks, it's a big problem or something's attacked. And of course, you've got Oracle attacks where people will attack an Oracle 
um, with its, its API, uh, make it think something's happened that hasn't happened and then trade on that opportunity. Um, so again, there are ways around this. You can begin to, um, and, and the reason why that's important, by the way, is if you're gonna create ETFs, which is exchange traded funds, effectively a regulated financial product um, that could be backed by underlying collateral, but it might not be, it might be a pure synthetic. Um, for you to have those, and this is why ETFs have been notoriously difficult to get approved by regulators, because regulators don't trust the data. They believe the markets are manipulated exactly. and they don't want regulated product being sold to retail or uh, institutions when you can't trust the integrity of the data that goes into and informs the pricing of the ETF. Um, and so, for example, we made investment into DIA data, um, which takes a crowdsourcing approach to um, validating oracles and um, the data inputs and outputs. Uh, and so effectively they allow for institutional grade oracles. And there are other people working on this, but they've taken this crowdsourcing approach. Um, and again, you know, these are things that all of a sudden you go, okay, well, I can, I can trust oracles more and therefore I can more likely to get um, regulated financial product that is then going to allow exposure to DeFi um, from a wider group of institutions. Native credit scoring, again, that's just going to happen in the same way that um, mutualization of insurance happened. Um, uh, and I kind of mentioned some of these things earlier. Then you start to look at different kinds of collateral. Um, so uh, we're starting to see more commodities, real-world commodities, um, being uh, turned into NFTs um, uh, or not, or just a, you know, a, a general synthetic. You're going to have derivatives coming in. Um, so people leveraging DeFi infrastructure for the efficiency gains, but for a form of collateral that they're already familiar with. They know how mm -hmm. to price, um, not some exotic kind of cryptocurrency. <clears throat> Income-bearing NFTs. So... Um, you can start to have forms of collateral that bear yield that is correlated to real world revenue. So as I said earlier, DeFi 1.0 gave yield based on not much real um, actual growth or income, right? Um, here, we can create NFTs that could be, for example, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with factoring, but basically, yeah. if I have a contract, I'm a supplier to a large corporation, Walmart, Walmart might pay me like three months after I've delivered the good. How do I finance my business? Well, there's something called factoring where because Walmart is such a credit worthy um, customer, yeah. they'll provide in advance. Yeah. Right. People will lend you money on the contract uh, mm -hmm. in advance. Exactly. Um, so if you think about the power of that, SMEs can turn contracts into NFTs. These can be traded, bought and sold freely in open market. They bear income, real income, not artificial income. That's going to be a game changer for, for DeFi. Um, and kind of SMEs and then also institutions that want to buy and trade that as, a, um, as, a, as an asset. Um, and then there's kind of several others. We probably don't have time to, to go into it, but the kind of big final one is around usability, right? So 
simple things like accounting and taxes. We did investment into a company called Cryptio. They basically allow an API plugin for your trading on centralized exchanges, decentralized exchanges to work with zero, right? Your accounting tool, automatically file your accounting. That's going to be like crypto accounting is a major barrier to most people. Simple, but like a major barrier. Yeah, I just did. I just did. Uh, ironically, the the previous episode you know, I did with uh, David Kemmerer, he's a CEO of uh, Crypto Trader Tax, and we went pretty deep in terms of how to even, uh, for, as a U.S. citizen, how do you even you know try to convince your accountant not to kill you and to. <laughs> <laughs> to to have capital gains and because it's not an easy topic there is a lot of nuances there the, if i may just, yeah. just one one if you can go a little bit up the actually the the one thing that you skipped like in terms of the swap in stos and and stable coins uh, uh, you know cbdc and then vice yeah. versa this is pretty interesting like you know the multi asset swap so you can pause here and explain also the the, the value of this particular angle yeah so um so the problem in DeFi as, as it is now is that because, as I said, um, both in terms of the asset and the counterparty, there's this great spectrum, right? You've got like Wild West, anybody come into token. Um, and then you've got things emerging like um, central bank digital currencies backed by governments, right? Um, and already regulators are, um, beginning to treat these things differently, right? So um, they're even looking at stable coins. Is it an algorithmic stable coins? The EU Commission saying, is it an algorithmic stable coin or collateral backed? We're going to treat these differently, actually, in terms of who can participate because of the risk level. Um, and then you're going to have, like, if it's income bearing, very likely it'll be treated as a security, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, like I was mentioning earlier, these kind of factoring. And so, the, the problem is if you have environments where you're going to only be able to trade CBDs or securities and another one where you'll trade things that aren't securities and you can't mix these two things, then you reduce the liquidity and ease for capital to flow between asset classes and find yield. Um, and so a lot of the things that I kind of just mentioned um, would allow for, so for example, being able to have surety that that user in that pool is allowed to trade that asset as a counterparty mm -hmm. would mean that you could have one open environment where um, all assets can be in the same pool. You have a pool with multiple assets. It could be a security, it could be a non-security um, or you know, uh, assets and capital could flow between pools um, and you could segregate by user, you can blacklist, whitelist. Um, and so a lot of things that I mentioned earlier would mean that you end up less with these two worlds of securities and non-securities. You end mm -hmm. up with just one global efficient capital market um, for DeFi. I think this is a very impressive topic because like I, as a person also who researched a lot of the STO space, you know, I understand that the the promise is is great you know it's very positive but the the liquidity is you know it's very low so this actually i i believe this might actually have a real uh, influx of liquidity like if once it's going to be implemented on on a, on, a, on a bigger scale uh so yeah this is pretty promising 
And then maybe the final one, because I know we're running out of time now, sure. um, would be on on kind of the usability. I mean, there's stuff around market efficiencies. I think that just gets ironed out by whether it's automate, um, automated market makers or something else. But this innovation is happening there that will make this a more efficient capital market. But of course, inefficiencies are good, right? They're arbitrage opportunities. That, that, that's not inherently a bad thing. Um, and the next one is uh, usability. And so I mentioned just taxes and, and accounting, but now we're starting to see things like um, CFI to DeFi bridges. So we've got a project called Alchemy. Alchemy is its whole premise is CFI to DeFi. So allowing uh, institutional grade usage of DeFi um, by building um, compliance systems. But also if you think about banking as it is today, anybody that's worked in banking or especially in IT in banking, it's just layers and layers of decades of technology. It's like awful. Um, so for that to work with DeFi, you have to build bridges. Yeah. So for example, we've got Bond 180. Bond 180 are building on Corda, um, primarily targeting fixed income. But the idea is, is that users of Corda, like R3, for example, R3 Consortia, could, by using their bridge, access DeFi. And as I said, we've got Alchemy that's looking more around that from a liquidity perspective. Um, so, you know, CFI to DeFi bridges is what's going to bring in a load of demand. And then this kind of uh, prime brokerage, which is basically just packaging up, um, kind of almost doing due diligence on the DeFi projects out there, having a threshold through which you're saying, okay, this is ready for prime time now. This is ready to be used by... Um, by retail, and then having them through a simple interface understand the risk profile of mm -hmm. that investment. Um, and so we've got an investment in something called Kitango out of Israel. Uh, and they're basically just building a, a prime brokerage, like a Robin Hood for DeFi. Um, and it just makes people be able to understand and manage the risk, especially in what they call deep DeFi, which is like when a product is reliant upon multiple protocols um, with everything that's involved, all the risk that's involved in, across multiple protocols. And so, you know, making that easy to understand and use, it's happening, it's a UX problem um, that is gonna, combined with everything else, bring uh, more demand. This is, uh, this is impressive, Jamie. Like seriously, I have learned so much things from you like today and uh, yeah, I think we can stop sharing. I'm gonna just, well, the last questions, you know, I will just ask you is, uh, more about what uh, uh, what what book uh, uh, is your favorite, and what is probably one of the most important books that uh, changed somehow your life or your par paradigm of thinking? Yeah, well, I think in this context, um, everything that we just discussed, um, the sovereign individual. Um, mm -hmm. Now, there's elements of it that are a little hardcore libertarian, and I'm. I'm kind of not a hardcore libertarian. I'm a European, so you know, I, I like liberty as much as the next person. But I also believe there are there is a role for for government. Um, but you know, bear in mind this was written, uh, you know, pre Bitcoin. Um, it, it effectively predicts what's going to be happening here um, with crypto, with DeFi, and how it's unstoppable. And it's amazing. You read through it and it's like, I mean, it also predicts po uh, the rise of populism as the nation state collapses under the weight of this stuff. It predicts uh, tax jurisdictions. 
Um, so now there's more wealth offshore than there is onshore. You know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? More likely it's a very bad thing, but it's a reality. And actually, um, decentralized finance um, might enhance or exaggerate it. And so I think it's a really important book to read, not because everything in it, I mean, it celebrates all these things. And I'm not necessarily saying we should celebrate all these things, but <laughs> there are certainly things we should consider, right? If we're not considering these things whilst we're creating DeFi and Web3, um, it's going to get dystopic pretty quickly. And, and so for me, that is like a, a 101 book uh, to kind of get your head into crypto and, and directionally where all the stuff's going as well. Got it. And the last question, which is very, again, very trivial. So what's the meaning of life to you? Yeah, well, <laughs> um, I mean, how I live, how I live my life personally um, is, I, I mean, I, it's a tricky one to answer. I, I kind of, I don't believe in a religion. I'm not, spiritual um i i kind of like um you know looking at and i'm also a big reader of history right that's kind of what i read when i'm not um reading about the future i'm kind of reading about the past it's like how i unwind and so i think if you look at history and humanity um uh there are certain truths about human behavior and that they're probably pretty inescapable and on the one hand, I kind of think everything that we're doing down here on this planet is a blip in time. It's kind of inconsequential to the universe. And um, at the same time, I do have to live here and, you know, my, my children are going to have to live here and I want the world um, uh, to, to serve us. Um, so, you know, I, I think that at Outlier, we're very purpose-driven. Like we believe in Web3. We believe that the web we're going to fix the world. We need to fix the web as it's become. We need to focus on user centricity mm -hmm. and giving the user control. And um, I believe market forces, if you really unleash market forces, the, 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 the power of competition, for example, in DeFi is going to, it's going to fix stuff. So, um, you know, I, I think that, it's difficult to say what is the meaning of life. Like the meaning of my life is, you know, of course, be a good father and put a put good, uh, create good people in, in the world so we can counterbalance those that are a little insane. Um, but like my day to day is really driven by this mission around Web3. You know, yes, I think it's a huge opportunity to make a shitload of money. Um, but I also think it's going to make a better world. And I kind of see crypto, DeFi, and Web3 as a hedge against uh, the abuse of power of monopolies and oppressive governments. And so, like, you know, it's not going to be perfect. We know that with the Web, Web1, Web2, you, you know, it's not going to be a utopia. But I do believe we can bake in the DNA of the Web um, user centricity. And if we can do that, then I think it's got a, a good, a good chance. Listen, I, this is, uh, this is impressive. I, I wish you all the best in what you guys are doing with web 3.0. I, I wish that in your next cohort and the other following cohorts, you're going to have only, uh, the most like, you know, I would say, uh, 
the most promising projects, you know, that will practically change the world for good. That will improve everything that we've talked today on, on this show. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I really learned a lot from you today, Jamie. So I thank you for that and uh, looking forward to, to work with you in the future. Yeah, great. Well, look, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And um, as I said, uh, hopefully some of your YouTube followers follow me over to uh, the Outlier Ventures channel. Um, we've got lots of great content that kind of build on stuff like this. Um, so we'd love to see people there. And yeah, thanks again for having me on. No, I'm sure they will. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks. Bye. Bye.